Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. Welcome to today's macro call. We've been saying for between 2020, it, it certainly is a macro year. ACG Analytics macro report comes out every Tuesday morning, led by Chris Zerwinski, Bart Ustevelt. Chris is our head international analyst. Bart joins us from the Atlantic Council and Moody's uh, Sovereign Risk in London. Also on the phone is John East, our head of research, Gabby FSA, our, our managing director. Big week in Washington, all in the macro space. We had biannual Humphrey Hawkins' testimony of the head of the Fed, both to the House and the Senate. That has implications. We have Director Bob Lighthizer testified about U.S. trade. A lot of different movable parts, all contributing to a thesis of where we think we're going to be come July and then into September in terms of the macro space. With that, I'd like to turn it over to Chris Zerwinski. Thanks, David. You know, first, I want to touch on what you mentioned with Powell's testimony this week. I think that everybody obviously was watching that and often were expecting it to have an impact on policymakers, especially at a time like right now when they're debating the contours of another coronavirus relief package and potentially other legislation, um, maybe even infrastructure, which was floated this week in a Bloomberg report and has all of a sudden gained some sort of momentum behind it. John, you obviously were covering this very closely. Do you think that Powell's testimony had any impact on lawmakers, he did push for an additional fiscal package to support the U.S. economy. I think that whenever the Federal Reserve chairman says something, it definitely has an effect. I'm not seeing, though, a quick agreement, especially among Senate Republicans, on what to do for another relief package. We will have one. That's really not the question. The question is what it looks like. So the House has proposed a $3 trillion package. That is never going to get through the Senate, although there are elements in it that may get through the Senate. Broad things like state and local aid, maybe food assistance, and certain an extension of unemployment benefits. But on some key questions, like what the unemployment benefit package looks like, how it's structured, and the extent of local aid, you know, these are big questions. Another big question that's really dividing the Senate is the PPP program and what to do. So there are some people who uh, want more assistance to the hospitality industry in particular. There's some who want to ensure that minority businesses get more money. There is some bipartisan support for or special loan facility for companies that have 10 or fewer employees. But there's also an effort to allow people who have already received assistance to get more. And then there are questions about the design of the program and whether eligibility restrictions uh, should be loosened or how they should be tailored. These are really big questions, and the Senate is not close to coming to an agreement on them. You, you mentioned the unemployment benefits, and I just want to say, you know, we, we do have a timeline on that. July 31st, they expire. You're very high conviction that they will pass something that will extend those benefits before July 31st, and just to be clear. Yes, and then PPP loan eligibility ends, I believe, June 30th for people to apply for loans, and there's still around $120 billion in the program, and it's sort of been like sticking at that figure. And so people are trying to figure out 
how to get that money outdoor, but we do have another legislative deadline. It looks like the Senate is going to move in July before the Senate is scheduled to take an August recess. In terms of the transportation bill, we have a September 30th expiration of the surface transportation programs, and the White House, perhaps inartfully, floated an idea for a $2 trillion infrastructure package, and that now looks like maybe it's a $1 trillion infrastructure package, which would bring Senate action to help stimulate the economy, potentially to a $2 trillion figure, as opposed to the House's $3 trillion. But that would probably be in two different bills, and it's not clear what the infrastructure proposal the White House is contemplating is. If it brings more money to the table so that it's not purely deficit spending, it's going to be a lot easier to get through the Senate. But if it's not offset spending, I don't know that the Senate Republicans actually are going to go for it. So that's basically Peter Navarro's, you know, we heard him over the weekend throwing out that $2 trillion number. That's not necessarily going to be one bill that, as you said, would be possibly split up in two, with the first trillion coming by July 31st in the form of this new relief package, and then perhaps one additional trillion in like an infrastructure package with something with a mover in these potential surface transportation bills. But that would be, you know, before that late September deadline. Yes, but the infrastructure proposal that was sort of floated to Bloomberg is definitely not written in stone yet. I have a question for you. So the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer testified both to the Senate Finance Committee and to the House Ways and Means Committee. I understand that he talked about free trade agreements and also our relationship with China. What, what were your takeaways from those two hearings? Well, he covered a lot of ground. I can tell you that I would not have wanted to be Lighthizer yesterday. He testified for, you know, like eight or nine hours. In the substance, you know, he did tread the line that we predicted beforehand and that we were expecting. He was relatively hawkish in some of the statements, but he wasn't outright inflammatory with regards to any U.S. bilateral relationship. I think most notably was positive on the U.S.-China relationship, and he defended the administration's agreement. When people talk about the purchases and the fact that China is lagging behind, no one would argue that right now they, they are, in fact, behind in their purchases. But the Peterson Institute is the study that is cited often and in terms of monitoring the purchases. And he basically went off on this long rant, if you will, probably not the nicest way to characterize that, saying that there are alternate ways to monitor these purchases and that the Peterson Institute study is not necessarily the most accurate way. And he's saying that he's expecting bigger agriculture purchases come the fall, greater energy purchases, a lot of ethanol in the fall as well. He did note that the energy purchases were lagging behind. He repeated something that, David, I think you've been saying, which is that there is a lot of progress on the reform side of things in addition to the purchases. So all in all, he defended the U.S.-China relationship, and I don't think that you know his first inclination is to go ahead and antagonize the Chinese with the phase one trade deal. Now, outside of that, he did not answer any questions related to Hong Kong. He kind of pushed those aside, but he did talk about that the USTR is monitoring the Hong Kong customs treatment. The Trump administration announced in response to the, you know, the loss of autonomy in Hong Kong through this national security law that we would be moving to end special economic and trade status. And we saw Pompeo meet yesterday with several Chinese officials in Hawaii. I don't think that that meeting in and of itself was something that a lot of people were expecting after this Hong Kong deterioration. Because Pompeo is the one who's in charge of much of the U.S. response. Not an olive branch, but it's at least some 
sign that, you know, there are guardrails here and there are certain lines that the U.S. does not want to cross yet. And so holding an in-person meeting in this time, the first one in a long time, I think is pretty symbolic. In our note, and these are these are two important points, we, we did see other positive news over the weekend with regards to the American Express approval for operating in China. And also, on top of that, the United States allowing U.S. US companies to participate in standard settings with Huawei. All that to say, I think that the U.S.-China relationship this week has improved slightly. And again, still in a negative spiral or in a negative trajectory, but I think that this week um, proved that we're not there yet at the cliff. Bart, we have more news this week. We have the EU heads of state and government are going to meet to discuss the next generation EU package. I'm assuming since our last call that we're still not expecting any serious progress, right? I think that's a good way to summarize it, Chris. So the, this meeting has been prepared by the ministers for Europe of every country. The, their summit was earlier in the week. And if you look at the statements and, and the results of that meeting, uh, you know they, they disagree on pretty much every aspect of this next generation EU proposal, as well as you know, big aspects of the next seven-year budget and the multi-annual financial framework. So the, the sticking point, they agree it's important to move quickly, but they weren't able to move ahead on a number of topics. A minor sticking point at this point is the distribution of the money. I think that they've made progress on you know, how to how to make sure the money gets the countries most affected by the pandemic. Big sticking point, a much bigger sticking point is you know, what taxes to raise to finance some of these efforts. There's no meaningful agreement on that. So I think the heads of state and government will take stock of this. They may get to some agreement on the distribution, but you know the money has to be raised before it gets distributed. So I don't think they'll, they'll get to an agreement on taxes. Given that they do agree it's, it's important to move this along at a higher pace, I think what this means is additional summits between now and October when, when the next quarterly summit was scheduled. Another takeaway from the from the Lighthizer testimony yesterday with regards to Europe, he did touch on ongoing US-EU and ongoing US-UK trade negotiations. You know, this feeds into, I, I think, some of the EU debate that Lighthizer essentially said that we're, there's no chance of getting a deal with either country in this next four or five months. The EU-UK negotiations and in Brexit negotiations take precedent. And so that brings me to the next question for you, too. Is there any update on those negotiations? Yeah, that's the, the other main topic on the agenda of the heads of state and government. It's been a bit of a wild week in terms of statements related to the Brexit negotiations. You know, on Monday, the UK and the EU put out a joint statement saying they wanted to, you know, reinvigorate the talks, make a lot of progress. And at this point in the week, we're at the point where von der Leyen gave a, a very aggressive speech to the European Parliament, basically holding the line on, on every topic, most importantly, you know, regulatory equivalents, but also security and police cooperation, fisheries, you know, every, every difficult file that's on the table, basically re-emphasizing the EU position and the unity of the bloc. Where I think this is headed is and where it, you know where you see a lot of preparations being made is just the prospect of, of no agreement by the time January 1st comes around. And you see preparations also in bilateral relationships to guard for that eventuality. It's interesting that Macron is in London today for commemoration of World War II related events, basically laying the groundwork for a bilateral relationship and resolution of issues with the UK. I did want to touch on the heat map again. Obviously, last week we were discussing some of the currency moves and their impact. Can you give us an update as to where we stand? Were there any significant changes in the rankings this week? 
We rank 75 countries according to their economic distress related to the pandemic. The dollar globally went up a bit over the past week, so that countries lost their currency gains. But overall, that picture still looks a lot better than it did at the beginning of the year for the entire data set. The number of cases, kind of the two-week growth rate that we look at, continues to inch down very slowly. 31% two weeks ago was 30% last week. It's now 28%. You still have very high growth in countries with big populations. So Brazil, 71% two-week growth rate. India, 75, Bangladesh, 86, Ethiopia is now 198 percent. You know, that's 100 million population. Pakistan, 100 percent, the double over the past two weeks. Clearly visible in the data that Latin America is now experiencing its peak. I think Peru surpassed Italy in terms of number of deaths. So, and then, you know, globally, what you're seeing is the second wave starting so that it's worth reminding people that you know, the second wave of Spanish flu was quite a bit worse globally than the first wave 100 years ago. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.